to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Scripture reading this morning comes from Judges chapter 16, verses 1 through 31. Judges 16, verses 1 through 31. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I, will, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying, now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And he said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again and after, after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you give us your word so graciously, and in it you give us yourself, and you reveal yourself, you reveal your glory to us, you reveal your salvation to us, and your greatness that we might be kept for you, dedicated to you, that we might belong to you now and forever. O Lord, bless us and give us your word. Open it up to our hearts that we may believe it and meditate on it and hide it in our hearts and live it out in our lives for your glory and honor and our good. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I uh, thought I was going to deal with the whole of uh, Samson and finish it today, but Samson, as uh, many people in Scripture are, uh, he, he's a complicated person, for sure. Um, and I want to deal with him in, under three uh, aspects. One is a warning. Samson is a warning to us. 
But then, paradoxically, he's also an example to us, not because I said it, but because Hebrews 11 says it. He's an example. Follow him. Follow his faith. So he serves as a warning in Scripture, but he also serves as an example or a model. And then finally, we're going to look at how he is a preview of Christ of all things. Now, next week, we're going to deal with model and preview. This week, we're going to talk about him as warning. And the first thing we want to talk about is these first three verses in chapter 16, which I would call and others have called a pivot in the Samson cycle, a pivot where things turn a corner and we're presented with something else. I'll get to that in a minute. But that would have been really wild, wouldn't it? As one uh, commentator described it, seeing Samson burst out of Gaza at midnight like a crazed orangutan escaping from the zoo (laughs) with gates in tow. That's what he was like, this wild animal bursting the gates of the city and showing again how ridiculous the Philistines are in trying to contain him. I'm sure many of you adults and probably most of you kids have seen the movie How to Train Your Dragon, which I think is just a fantastic movie. And you'll remember at the end where the Vikings had gathered to what they thought have a war with the regular dragons. Little did they know, as Hiccup had tried to tell his dad, that there's something far worse there. You have no idea, Dad, what's there. And so they're sitting there, all the regular dragons fly off and they think it's over when suddenly the whole side of the mountain crumbles to pieces. And here's the mega monster dragon who makes the other ones look like little bumblebees. And he's the one they all serve. He enslaves them. And with one breath, he destroys all the ships. Bam, it's over. And then ensues the Great War. You have to see the movie. Um, But that's what this is like. For them, standing, some of them, perhaps they were outside the gates, perhaps they were inside dozing at the gates, but just thinking at the break of day when he's still slumbering, groggy, stumbling out, we'll catch him. When suddenly sitting there, everything breaks to pieces, the gates are being torn off their hinges, and you can just see these guys cringing and ducking and running and yelling and probably crying out for their mommy, And they're just trying to get out of his way, trying to escape this tornado that suddenly burst out of Gaza. And he doesn't just break through the gates. He takes them with him. (laughs) What in the world? The Philistines aren't even mentioned. It's like they're treated with utter contempt. They don't even count anymore. They're just broken and utterly humiliated, as Barry Webb says. And he puts the gates on his shoulders. I loved it when I got old enough when we would open a watermelon that dad would send me out to the car to get the watermelon and I could put it on my shoulder, you know, walk in with it just like dad would, you know. I was maybe 10 or 11, 12 and, you know, had to really hustle it up, but walk in it. He's, he's taking the gates off like a watermelon and he carries them 40 miles. I mean, that took several, maybe it was two two weeks, you know, that he went a couple of miles a day because he's got the gates on his shoulders, you know. Just amazing feat, 
superhuman feat of power. Now, this is a, a pivot because it turns a corner because chapters 14 and 15 present a story of Samson and then 16 presents a similar story that's structured in the same way. This is the pivot, okay? So in 14 and 15, he sees a woman. 16, he loves a woman. There's a riddle. There's another riddle. There's a threat to the woman, to the wife. There's a bride to the woman. There's a betrayal. In the end of 15, there's this destruction of a thousand Philistines. At the end of 16, the destruction of 3,000. And involved in both is the great prayer of Samson for life in 15, for death in 16. So you see, the play, it's like here is part A, here's part B, and they're a mirror image one of the other. And the one, 14 and 15, shows Samson basically dedicated to God. Then after this pivot, we enter into Samson no longer dedicated to God, giving away his special status, belonging to God. And this pivot then functions to show us that no matter what they do, the Philistines are never going to contain Samson until they find the source of his great strength. This prepares us, see, for what comes later in chapter 16. And also this story tells us what happened during the days of his judgeship. We, we read this at the end of chapter 15. This is another reason why this looks like part A, part B, because at verse 20, he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. That looks like his story, but then the story starts all over again, see. And at the end of 16, it talks about his judgeship. So two halves of his life. And, and what 1 through 3 tells us is what's been going on the whole of the days of his judgeship. Because this is obviously the end of his judgeship here. This story of Delilah is the tail end of his life. And 1 through 3 tells us that the typical events were going on. Philistines trying to catch Samson, Samson breaking out of their traps. This was the way it went. Samson getting the better of them again and again, finally setting up this golden opportunity with Delilah. And also, it serves a message to Hebron. He brings it to this hill that's opposite Hebron. Hebron is in Judah. Judah is, uh, the people of Judah are the ones that bound him up and gave him over to the Philistines in the chapter before that. This gate then is a kind of in-your-face war trophy for Hebron. It's a throwdown for Judah. You want peace with the Philistines? Here's your peace. You know, bam, here's the gate of Gaza. Hey, Judah, bind this. You know, that's what I think he's saying here after they had bound him. Yeah, bind this. And they're staring at him across the valley, probably hoping he doesn't come into Hebron and start tearing things up. And when they knew he was safely gone, you can imagine them walking there and gawking over these gates like we gawk over Stonehenge, wondering how in the world, how in the world, now, though next week we're going to deal with how Samson is a preview of Christ, I just have to at least mention this 
because of the cool relationship. At least an analogy here, uh, if not a, an actual preview, at least an analogy. Where Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, one place, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, the gates of hell, or gates of Hades, represent the gates of death. Okay? The place of death will not prevail against God's church. Death and all that it represents will not overcome, will not overthrow the church. The church will be sustained and protected and made absolutely and finally victorious over death in all aspects of her life. We will go on in strength by God's grace to serve Him and be sustained by the life of the Holy Spirit. And so it's as though Christ has taken the gates of death and thrown them down before us and said, I've conquered death forever. And unlike Samson, who didn't summons the people, he summons us, Christ does, and says, will you remain in death or will you come with me into a new life? To trust me to receive this new life I offer. Because he has suffered death and judgment in the place of sinners. And he can therefore offer escape from death and judgment. Because as we just sang, that our sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Therefore, he can offer us complete life and freedom from judgment and death because of his suffering. This gate was won, so to speak, by the very suffering of the Son of God. So, here, Samson throws this gate down. He says, in effect, to them, I'm not going to give in to the Philistines He continues to be defiant, warring, resisting Samson, but it all the more just shows the sad contrast of what is to come. He's not going to give in to them, he says, by this gate. But then so sadly and tragically, he does give in to them in a way that he did not expect. Now, you have to understand the hair thing because it it seems in some ways... Uh, weird, you know, like, frankly, you can read the story of Adam and Eve and think it's a little weird and think, wait a minute, the whole of creation is undone because they eat a piece of fruit? You've got to be kidding me. I don't know if you've ever thought that. Well, now now you have because I've said it, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I hadn't. Oh, now I'm going to think about that. Um, but here's the thing. The, the tree... It's not just a piece of fruit. This tree stands for the whole of their relationship with God. It stands for everything. It stands for their trust in Him, their honor to Him, their love to Him, their obedience to Him. It is their relationship in a a form, you see. It's the symbol of that whole relationship. And so when they took the tree, they literally turned their back upon God and says, We want you no more. We trust you no more. We do not honor you. We do not regard your goodness. We despise you. We turn away from you. You're no longer ours. That's what that meant. You see, that's what this hair represents. This hair represents his being given up to God, his belonging to God, his being owned by God, being a servant of God, an instrument of God. And by giving over this secret, Samson is saying... I don't care anymore 
about my God. I don't regard this relationship as important anymore. I turn my back upon him. I despise him. I despise belonging to him. I despise being owned by him. I want my own life, and I'm going to take it. Even though it came through the cajoling of this this woman. Now, this is a rerun of chapter 14, right? There's a riddle in 14, a riddle in chapter 15. But chapter 14 is low-stakes poker. It's like the front room where they're playing for a few hundred bucks. But there's a backroom poker game, and it's in the millions. That's what chapter 16 is. It's the backroom poker game. Because he's playing for everything. He's playing for his whole life, the whole meaning of his life from birth, the whole reason for his birth to be dedicated to God for God's purposes. That's what's at stake. And for her, it's just money, right? Five lords probably, each giving her 1,100 shekels of silver, a huge, huge amount of money. And she didn't seem to hate Samson particularly, you know. Uh, They didn't threaten her either like they did the wife because she was obviously too powerful. She probably had a lot of money. But they knew she loved money. And they knew once he fell for her that they could use the situation. They knew that she was heartless and all she cared about was a buck. And so for him, it's the whole meaning of his life. For her, it's just business, right? I got bills to pay. I got jewels and clothes and property and spices to buy. That's what it's all about for me. And then you wonder, what's going on with Samson? This back and forth riddling, you know, the, the cords and then the ropes and then the hair. Is he playing with her? Does he think it's all a game? Does he think she's just kidding with him? Is he that blind to the situation? Is he naive? Or some suggest he may have been walking closer and closer to this preposis on purpose, toying with the idea of abandoning his calling and just settling in to live like other men, just leaving the whole thing and just let me be like everybody else. And he toys with it and he toys with it and finally he just gives it away because he doesn't want this calling anymore. He doesn't want to be holy anymore doesn't want to belong to God anymore. Probably some of both. Abandoning but not realizing the terrible consequences. And then after the bowstrings and ropes, he really plays it dangerous, doesn't he, by talking about hair. And immediately, you know, you're like, wait a minute. It draws you in at this point. Whoa, whoa, don't even mention your hair. What are you doing? Back off. Come on. The drama builds more in verse 14 because as it talks about making it tight with the pen, in verse 14 it says that she makes it tight with the pen. That's the, it literally means she pierced his hair with the pen because you have to pierce it to make it tight. That's the same word used when J.L. pierced Sisera's head with the tent stake. We're made to recall that. It's got a ominous feel about it, deadly, dangerous feel of a head being pierced. We've seen this before. We're made to think 
oh no, this is not good. This is not good. And then after these three times, she pounds him like a battering ram. Never lets up. Always on him, right? How can you say you love me? You won't be open with me. You won't share your heart with me. What kind of marriage do you call this when you don't let me even get close to you? Where is trust? Where is transparency? We've got to be vulnerable and open our relationship. You just mock me and ridicule me. Is that all I mean to you? You know. (laughs) I hope you don't know, but maybe. (laughs) Better to live on the corner of a roof, right? Like the dripping of water. So the Proverbs say, is a woman who won't let it go. That's my translation. But Well, she played also on the fact, as it says in the text, it didn't say this of his wife. In fact, she said, you don't love me there. Certainly doesn't say it of the prostitute. But the narrator makes a point when he starts this section to say he loved her. He really, really loved her. He desired her. He wanted to be with her. The wife, apparently, the one in 14, was like a prize acquisition. She was right for him. You know, like in my high school Dating a cheerleader, you know, that was like, you could walk down the hall with a cheerleader, then, yeah. He didn't care about her necessarily, it's just, I got a cheerleader. That's all she meant to him, apparently. And she was not, she was still nameless, right? But now we know her name, Delilah, and he loves her. And Webb points out, You know, the saying, love is blind, Barry Webb says, love blinded him to the dangers involved and eventually led to his being literally blinded in the most brutal way imaginable. And you can see her heart depicted so well in some of the countless paintings, one of the most common subject in the history of art. Matthew Stone, for instance, as she's cutting his hair, is just smiling. It looks like she's saying, This is so fun. You're my ticket, my friend. Looks like she's already shopping, you know, that look on her face. One of Van Dyke's paintings, there's the most agonizing look on Samson's face. He's he's horrified in shock that this woman he loves so much has betrayed him. And her arm is out, it looks to me sarcastically as to say, Oh, too bad you have to go now. Bye. You know, just the feel of it, his agony and her just saying, see ya, see ya. Or like Biscano's painting, she's smiling as they seize him. Happiest day. Everything's working. I got my money. You're going away. This is perfect. Guercino, she's looking back after she's cut his hair, indicating, it's done, it's done, come and get him. Several others, like Caravaggio's, have her sushing the men as they approach. Be careful, get him, get him, be careful. But then this Dutch painter, uh, I guess you pronounce his name, Vinga, uh, W-I-N-G-H-E, Vinga maybe. It's one of the most dramatic ones, and it's... It has him being seized right at the moment of his being seized. And her 
hand is holding down one of his arms. And she's looking down at him with no emotion, almost like a horror film. She's looking down saying, time's up. That's what it looks like. It's just terrible. And, of course, in Rembrandt's great painting, they're actually gouging out his eyes as Delilah, as Delilah walks in the back holding up the hair with this look of glee and contempt and triumph. You know, that's her name, actually. Uh, Delilah is close to the name of Night, which was, we found in the first two or three verses four times. Lilaya is Night. And so it calls to mind darkness. And, of course, his, mean, his, his uh, name means the sun. So you have this picture of darkness being set upon the sun or the sun being put out as his eyes are gouged out. And so darkness falls upon him through the betrayal of Delilah. How sad. And why all this talk? Why do we go into detail about how heartless she is and how it's depicted so well in art? Well, this is the warning of his life, the warning of his life. It's a picture to us of the deception of sin and the heartlessness of, of sin. It's so graphic. It, we, we look at it and just say, don't, don't, don't. But then we, in the middle of the battle ourselves, aren't standing off saying to ourselves, don't, 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 right? We're, we're in the middle of it. We're giving in to our sin. We're giving in to our prejudices. We're giving in to our own point of view, our own view of life acting on our own uh, righteousness. And we don't realize that the enemy doesn't care about us. The enemy, if, if you can personify sin, sin smiles when you fall. Sin despises your well-being. Sin wants to ruin you, wants to ruin your family, wants to ruin the church, wants to ruin relationships and community and society. It wants to ruin the whole earth, if possible. And that sin's an object, you know. It's our ruin. But so many times we love it so much that we're blind to its evil. We're blind to its consequences. And so sadly, we give ourselves to it, hoping it will give us life, even as Eve did and Adam, expecting to get life from it expecting to get meaning and purpose. John Owen, in his great work on putting sin to death, says that we must constantly maintain the strongest sense of the danger of sin, of the guilt of sin, and of, I would call it, the repulsiveness of sin. That's hard. It's hard to maintain that sense of the great guilt of it, the great danger of it, the repulsiveness of it in order that we can stay clear of it. But a story like this can help us at least. And in giving ourselves to sin, there's this sacrifice of our relationship to God. We sacrifice so much for not only nothing in return, but we sacrifice so much for our own ruin. 
It, that, that's what's so shocking. That's why we must be utterly dependent upon God and His grace because when it gets to sin, we are lunatics by nature. We're lunatics. We're crazy. That's why Paul describes it in that way in 2 Timothy when he says, perhaps they will come to their senses, become sane again, and escape the snare of the devil. That's why we must be utterly dependent upon His Word and prayer and the worship of God's people and the meeting with God's people, supplying ourselves because we realize, I will think so badly about sin if given the chance. I constantly have to be renewing my mind, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. And Ralph Davis is the commentator that points out this this sad statement, he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. And he speaks of how, as many others do, about how he represents uh, Israel in this and how Israel would pander after other gods and expect to just have Yahweh whenever they wanted him. And and here is Samson, like Israel, ignorant of her true condition, which in Hosea 7 says, Strangers devour his strength, but he knows it not. Israel would assume that all is well. And Jeremiah, on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find even breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring to you judgment for saying, I have not sinned. And in the middle of sin to be able to say, but hey, whenever we want to, we can say, save us. So I'm going to end with the fact that God does hear him, okay? So that's where we're going. But that doesn't mean that therefore you say, well, I can always do whatever I want to and God will be with me. Because that's not the way the promises go. The promises don't go in the way, hey, go and sin however you want to, I'll be there. That's not how it goes. When you have fallen, yes. When you have stumbled, yes. When in your effort to obey Him you fail, yes, He is there to pick you up. But don't play this game with religion and Christianity where you're not in prayer, you're not in the Word, you're not struggling against sin, you're not trying to put it to death, you're not talking with other believers and getting yourself involved with the people of God, you're not seeking Him together with them in worship, but you're immersing yourself primarily in the world, which in itself is not wrong necessarily to enjoy the culture and creation that God's given us. That's not wrong, but when that replaces God and he doesn't play a part and yet you think that you have, will have strength for the day when you face great difficulties in your life, it's not going to be there. See, people are able to face great difficulties and glorify God and give themselves up to him because they've been training for it, you know? They've been training for it. Training to believe Him in the Word. Training themselves in prayer. Training themselves in fellowship with one another. And 
Even worse, Davis talks about denominations that have turned away from God in their belief in Him, in their belief in Jesus, and yet don't realize that He has abandoned them. He's abandoned them because they no longer trust in His Son. So, Samson represents Israel just like Samson is always going after women, just like Samson seems to want to be like other men. So Israel wanted to be like other nations. Israel kept going after other gods. And so he stands for Israel. He represents Israel. He is a warning to Israel later days. Don't be like this one who ran after foreign women, that you would run after uh, foreign gods. Even his own blinding previews, the blinding of the last king of Israel, Zedekiah, who was blinded and deported uh, to Babylon. And and here's the point to end here, brothers and sisters. Uh, you, you don't get to have a secular history as a believer. You just don't get to. You get to have a holy history. You get to have a history that's embedded in the history of God. You get to live out your life as one who belongs to God and who is like God and who loves the things of God and who represents God and manifests God in this world. That's what you get to be. And when you and I sin, you know what we're doing? We're like saying to God, I don't like this relationship I have with you. I don't like belonging to you. In a sense, it's almost as though we're saying, I don't, you know what? It's like being under your thumb, having to belong to you. Having to do your will. You know, that kind of attitude. Rather than the privilege bought with the precious blood of Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, page 955, if you turn there. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have for God? From God, so He has taken possession with you of you. Your body itself is now His holy temple. That's how you belong to Him. And he says, "You are not your own. You aren't, and you and I better like it, right? Love it, treasure it, value it. That you're not your own anymore." He says, "For you were bought with a price. So glorify God." In your body. So glorify God in your body. You get to be dedicated to God. And that's why you're called holy ones. That's why you're called saints. To realize my intimate belonging to this glorious God who graciously has brought me to himself through the sacrifice of his own son so that I could know him and be refreshed in him and he could be my shelter He could be my refuge. He could be my strength for a new life in which I benefit others with my life. I mean, it's awesome, of course, what God has done for us to draw us to himself and let us belong to him and all that that means, even at the cost of his own blood. And then be encouraged, no matter what your past has been, 
Because you'd think at this point when Samson cries out that God would just say, no, no, you, you chose. You cut your hair. There's that little ray of hope, isn't there? But his hair started growing back, you know, like God's not through. And God's never through with you if you're his, his own. Never, ever. He's going to keep claiming you, keep coming after you, keep bringing you to himself. And here's Samson. <clears throat> he, he was, he didn't want to have God anymore. He turned his back upon belonging to God. The mix of motives with Samson that we see all throughout this passage, these passages about him. And you have to realize, even when you first come to Christ and there's at least this seed of true faith, you come to him with so many agendas, so many hidden things that you're holding on to that he just continually opens you up to to see again and again in your life. You've got so much brokenness that you bring to the table when you first come, you don't even realize it. I don't even realize it. He still graciously embraces you, still graciously takes you to himself. He's going to unfold those one after another, always holding on to you, always loving you, knowing you're going to fail, knowing you're going to reject him at times. And when you come stumbling back, he is always more eager to receive you than you could ever be to cry out to him. And so these words are so precious Poor sinner, dejected with fear, unbosom thy mind to the Lamb. No wrath on his brow does he wear, nor will he poor mourners condemn. His arm of omnipotent grace is able and willing to save, a sweet and a permanent peace. He'll freely and faithfully give. Come just as thou art with thy woe. Fall down at the feet of the Lamb. He will not, he cannot say go, but surely will take out thy stain. A fountain is open for sin and thousands its virtues have proved. He'll take thee and plunge thee therein and wash thee from filth in his blood. A soul that on Jesus relies, he'll never, no, never deceive. He freely and faithfully gives more blessings than we can conceive. Yea, down to old age he will keep, nor will he forsake us at last. He knows and is known by his sheep. They are his and he will hold them fast. Be encouraged. Return to him. Cry out to him. He will answer Samson. He will answer you. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord Jesus, you're a glorious and great Savior, a true sun shining in glory, taking away our darkness, delivering us from the evil of our hearts and, Lord, giving us a new life in you. We thank you that you have given us new life by your Holy Spirit, that through your death we've been delivered out of darkness. We've been delivered out of this present world, as Paul says, into the precious hands of God, the precious hands of our Savior Jesus to live a new life, not perfectly, but surely, sincerely, progressively, to become more and more what you have intended us to be. Oh, Lord, thank you for such a salvation. Keep us 
Draw us to yourself ever and again. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Won't you chase my fears away?